Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. I'm recording this on Thursday, October 27th, just a few days before Halloween. And I thought I'd talk a little bit about the horror movies from what they call Hollywood's Golden Age. And I'm specifically talking about the earliest periods from the late 1920s through the 1940s. I think there was a certain gothic element to those horror movies that kind of gave way to more of the blood and guts kind of thing that you saw later on. Not only with Hammer Films remaking a lot of the classic monster movies in the 1950s and 60s, but just in general that instead of being something that is eerie and disturbing and often quality pieces of art on their own, you got more of, you know, a lot of blood, a lot of slashing, that kind of thing. But when you look at the old black and white universal pictures, especially, although it wasn't only universal that made some great horror movies, there was also a, a, a fantastic version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde made by Paramount Pictures. But I first got interested in, let's say, for the Frankenstein series, the original Bela Lugosi Dracula, the Wolfman made by Universal with Lon Chaney Jr. Those are kind of the big three. And then there were a whole bunch of mummy pictures. Incidentally, I have come to like the earlier Werewolf of London with Henry Hull much better than the Lon Chaney Wolfman, although I still do like that one. There's a lot of great things to say about it. Maybe I'll get into that a little bit later. This is going to be kind of stream of consciousness. <laughs> so I'll give you a little personal history too to, to go along with it, which younger members of the audience might find interesting. Some dotes from the pre-internet age, even the pre-cable TV age. How about that? So what got me interested in these old movies that were filmed decades before I was born, I, I do distinctly remember a local television program in Buffalo called Friday Fright Night. And 
I looked this up on IMDb, and it turns out that this only ran until 1969. So I would have been four years old around the Halloween part of the year in 1969. But I do remember that my father would allow me to stay up later than I usually would to watch one of the classic movies when they came on. He liked the old stuff that he remembered from when he grew up. So my dad was born in 1930. He would have been going to the movies in the late 30s and early 40s to see like the matinee movies. And later in the Frankenstein series, it's obvious that they started aiming the movies at a younger audience when they had Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman and Dracula all in the same movie. I'll get to that. So he remembered those. And when they came on, he'd allow me to stay up. And I also suspect that they continued to call that time slot on channel seven in Buffalo Friday, fright night later. Cause I, I have a hard time imagining that I would remember anything from being four years old. But what I will tell you is that this book that I have in my hand called Great Monsters of the Movies, written by Edward Edelson, was published in 1973. And I would have bought this book. uh, I had a copy of this book when I was in grade school, and I literally used to carry it with me everywhere. I had it in my back pocket of my pants. Now we weren't allowed to wear jeans to school. I went to a Catholic school, had to wear a tie. Same thing in high school. So I was really abused for like 13 years. I had to wear a a tie to school every day. But I, I carried this book around because I just read from it. I probably had it memorized at one time. It's a short little book also aimed at a younger audience, 113 pages of large print and a lot of pictures. But I carried it around for so long that the cover fell off. And then I made a new cover out of this heavy paper and drew pictures on it and put the title of the book on it. So this was something I was very interested in as a little kid. Now, this thing was published in 1973, and I would have got it probably that fall. And the way we used to get books when we were kids in school, there was a newsletter that would come around. And they would pass it out and you could thumb through this thing. And if you saw something that you liked, you could order the book. You'd give your teacher the money for the book and then it would be delivered a month later or whatever. That's where I got the original copy of this book. I was hoping I still had it somewhere and all the stuff that's been transferred from house to house. But alas, I couldn't find it. I found a copy of it on Amazon used. And this one has yellow pages, but it's in pretty good shape. And it has information on how they made the original movies. And again, it's aimed at a younger audience. But I remember knowing that, for example, the guy who did the Frankenstein makeup on Boris Karloff, his name was Jack Pierce. And he also did the Wolfman makeup on Lon Chaney Jr. and a whole bunch of other makeup for these old classic horror movies. So I knew all kinds of things about the horror movies. And later I got some other books when I was a little bit older, but this is the one that was my primary source. So already by 1973, I was interested enough in this stuff 
stoked to buy this book and then carry it around with me from 1973, probably till I graduated from grade school. Maybe not quite that long. So the other thing I'll say is, yes, I used to see these. You'd have to wait till they came on TV and then you'd have to stay up late because they'd play it in some time slot that wouldn't interrupt prime time, obviously. And that's how I got to see like the original Frankenstein and the original Dracula and the Wolfman and all those 30s and 40s classic horror movies. And then a few years later, along comes this innovation called cable TV. And with cable TV, you're not going to believe this, you could get more than three channels on your television. We actually had more than three channels because even before cable, we had in Buffalo, Channel 2, which is the NBC affiliate, Channel 4, the CBS affiliate, Channel 7, the ABC affiliate, and we at least had Channel 29, which was like an independent station, and then we had the public television station that Sesame Street was on. That might have been it. I'm not sure that there were any more, but you'd use your antenna maybe to pick up a channel from out of town. But in any case, that's what we had before cable. And when cable came on, holy cow, you have all these different channels. And on Saturday mornings, I remember that there was a particular cable channel that would broadcast a New York station called WPIX, which is still you know, a New York City station, Channel 11. And there were some things that you could see there that you couldn't see on the Buffalo channels. And then at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, it would switch from WPIX to WOR, Channel 9, New York, another New York City station. And at 10 o'clock, they would play old movies. And very often, these horror movies would cycle through. So I watched all of those ridiculous mummy movies. The original with Boris Karloff in 1932, I believe, that was a pretty good movie. And of course, the mummy in that movie is only wrapped in the bandages in the opening scene. And then the rest of the movie follows the plot where this mummy has come back to life, but he walks around like a regular guy that looks very old, but is not wrapped in bandages. Let's take a short break for this important message. Let me ask you something. What if there was someone out there who kept a log of every single thing you did every minute of the day? That would probably creep you out. Well, that's exactly what happens every time you go online. Your internet provider stores logs of every website you've ever visited and can legally sell this data to anyone. Worse yet, the government can obtain your data via bulk FISA order, even if you're not personally suspected of any crime. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. Visit expressvpn.com mullen right now and find out how you can get three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Mullen. Protect your data and get three months for free today. Don't worry about tomorrow. I'll be waiting here if you should call. Cause if I 
And then a series started in 1940 with a movie called The Mummy's Hand. And this one kind of followed the same storyline with this ancient guy who had uh, had a forbidden love with some temple priestess or somebody. And, you know, he's searching through the centuries to reunite with her reincarnated spirit. And he, he comes to life. And the problem with the mummy is he's bound up in these bandages. And most of these ones in the 1940s, he's, he's got a, a damaged leg. He's got a limp. He doesn't move around very fast. So you can imagine it takes quite a willing suspension of disbelief to find this thing menacing. But somehow he maneuvers his victims into corners or, or whatever and strangles them. It's very silly. But when you're nine years old, you know, it's it's really good stuff. By the way, Lon Chaney Jr. played the which basically was be wrapped up in bandages and hobble around with one hand working for the last three of those in that series. So there was The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Ghost, The Mummy's Curse, and there was one other, and I, I can't remember the name. But again, the original Boris Karloff movie in the early 1930s was pretty good. And again, once you've seen that story, you know the story behind all the Mummy movies. They're, they're all the same. But I wanted to talk in particular about the Frankenstein series because, of course, this is my favorite. And a lot of people don't probably realize how the series progressed. There was the original Frankenstein made in 1931, and probably a lot of people have seen a clip of Colin Clive yelling, it's alive, it's alive. Now, when I first saw this movie, I saw a version that had been edited where in that scene where Colin Clive, the, the monster comes alive and Colin Clive is kind of out of control, yelling, it's alive, it's alive. And all of a sudden there's kind of a, a weird jump where his body just moves from one place to the next. And you can tell something was cut out and what had been cut out, which you can now view probably even on YouTube, but was the line, now I know what it feels like to be God. So that was considered just you know beyond the pale in 1931 by the censors, and that was cut out. So I never heard that line, although the general theme of the Frankenstein movie, and, I'm, and we'll get into what the book was really about, but the general theme of the Frankenstein movie is that Frankenstein has encroached upon places that man should not go. And then, of course, this makes him a tragic figure because he is not equipped to deal with this huge responsibility of creating another human being. It goes wrong. And, you know, in the movie, the monster gets the wrong brain. Like his hunchback assistant is supposed to get the brain of... of you know, a normal person, and he drops it. He gets scared while he's stealing it out of a, a university lecture hall. And then he takes, you know, what is labeled as an abnormal brain. And they have this whole scene where Edward Van Sloan, who's also Van Helsing in the original Dracula, I shouldn't say original, the the first sound Dracula, as far as I know, but there were lots of silence 
of Frankenstein, Dracula, and, and all sorts of these before the 1930s. But Sloan is giving a lecture and, you know, with the pseudoscience of the time, I'm sure he's showing how the criminal brain has less convolutions and, and it looks more smooth compared to the normal brain. And this is supposed to indicate why the person's life was one of uh, violence and crime and, and murder. So that's the brain that goes into the monster, thanks to this goof up by the, uh, by the assistant. And that's kind of how the story goes. But the larger story, again, is this idea that you know, man can't encro- encroach upon the areas that are reserved for God, or else there's going to be tragic consequences, which, of course, a lot of modern people criticize to say, well, wait a minute, you're saying that you can't pursue the truth to the utmost? And, and I want to get into something in The Bride of Frankenstein and the novel, which I think is a layer to these movies that nobody really gets because it, it there's more to it than that. I think that Mary Shelley's original intention actually was to, to say something different than that. But anyway, you go through this original movie and it's got all kinds of classic scenes. One of the things I'd like to point out to people is that if you put this on and everything you see is shot indoors including the outdoor scenes. They would shoot these on what they called a soundstage. And so all the background sky you see is just a curtain. And it's pretty incredible what those directors back then could do with what we would consider just completely primitive stagey props. And sometimes you hear kind of the echo, like when they're digging the grave, you can hear like, you know, as the as the dirt falls on to the grave or, or they're pulling the, the casket out, there's an echo there that would only occur indoors that it's pretty obvious when you watch carefully. But to me, that just, you know, even adds to the, the skill of these directors, what they could do with lighting shadows. And of course they wanted to shoot indoors most of the time so that they could have control over the environment. So, those are some things to watch. And also, there, you know, James Whale is one of my favorite directors, not just for his horror movies, but I think he made the only musical that I could ever call really a great film. That's the original Showboat. And I think his is still considered the definitive version. And if you don't, you don't like musicals, which I generally don't, but you watch this one, there's a lot more depth and quality to this thing than the average, you know, Oklahoma where the whatever comes blowing down the path. So I would highly recommend that. His Man in the Iron Mask, I think, is the best version. And I really have never seen anything that he was involved with that wasn't absolutely fantastic. So I, I recommend James Whale as a director. But I will say that as far as the original Frankenstein, I believe The Bride of Frankenstein is a better movie by an order of magnitude. It just has so much more to offer in it. There is definitely some philosophical depth to this movie that is just not there in the original Frankenstein. And remember, you know, a great movie does not have to be deep. A great movie is really there to bring to life 
an idea visually, and before there was sound, it was just visually. A lot of these early filmmakers, of course, had directed silent movies, and some of them came from the stage. And I would say that the original Frankenstein is very stagey in some respects. And and so so too are all of the movies in that era to more or less degrees. But Bride of Frankenstein really goes into an area that was contained in the novel. So in the novel, the bride is something that the, the monster wants. Now, in the novel, the monster is very articulate, and he has long speeches that he gives or, or logs with Frankenstein and others. So he's not kind of this mute, uh, dull-witted creature that you see at the beginning of the original Frankenstein. In the novel, what the monster decides he wants to do is he wants to make Frankenstein make him a mate, and then he was going to promise to go off somewhere away from all civilization and live out his years with this mate. I'm going on memory from reading the novel once in college and in the 80s, and once after that, but maybe not in the 20th century or 21st century. I'm not sure, but it's been quite a while. But the the plan, the monster's plan was he was going to make, you know, have Frankenstein make him this companion, and then he would go away and not bother anybody again. And Frankenstein starts working on the project, but then decides to destroy the mate in the novel. And this is what uh, inspires the monster's revenge to kill Frankenstein's wife on her wedding night. So some of these elements from the novel... The actual events are changed, but they're referred to. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. How could I think about So in one of the two Frankensteins, I believe it was Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, it was. It was Valerie Hobson at the beginning of the movie when she believes that her fiance, Henry Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein is dead. She says, I was foretold to beware my wedding night. And of course, in the movie, the monster is the one that tells her, I'm sorry, in the novel, the monster is the one who tells her that. 
and she's actually killed on her wedding night. So they've changed that here for Bride of Frankenstein. So Bride of Frankenstein picks up where the original movie left off, where they believe the monster is killed in this burning windmill. But of course, he falls down into a subterranean pond or body of water there that's underneath the windmill. And he survives and you know somebody falls in and he kills that person. And the thing that is very interesting about The Bride of Frankenstein is the idea of the responsibility of the creator to the created. And there's all kinds of thematic stuff going on in the movie. The monster is is pictured as a Christ figure. Whale kind of hits you over the head with that. Make sure you don't miss it. In one scene early on where the villagers are after the monster and they capture him, he's tied to a pole with his hands kind of over his head, tied by the wrists and his feet bound. And they raise him up for a moment and all the villagers are throwing things at him. And he's obviously suffering and in a somewhat crucifixion style pose, you know, on this pole. It's not a cross, but if you watch the scene, you can't help but see that it's a crucifixion kind of analogy. And then when they take him into town, they put him in this ginormous chair, which who knows why it exists, but it's got chains for his arms and his feet. And a guy is actually nailing these bolts into the ground, into the wood to tighten the chains on him. So he's not nailing anything into the the monster's flesh. But every time the hammer comes down on the chain, the, the monster lets out kind of a anguished grunt. And again, this is an analogy to the crucifixion. And then if you haven't caught it by that time, there's the whole scene with the hermit when the monster is staying in the hermit's hut. And as the monster is falling asleep and they have this melodramatic scene that they've each finally found a friend and there's tears streaming down the face of both of them. As that scene fades to black, Whale has the crucifix that's over the cot that the monster is sleeping on remain visible and kind of mogrified into this bright shining thing so that, again you associate the monster with Christ. Now, why do they want to associate the monster with Christ? Or why did Whale want to? Or the screenwriters or both? Well, there's another theme that weaves through Bride of Frankenstein, and that's the invented character, Dr. Pretorius. Now, the reason you have to have Dr. Pretorius is because they've made the monster to be far less intelligent and articulate as than he was in the original novel. And some of that could be that they wanted to picture him as more of a newborn, you know, not just somebody who's dumb, but you got the whole abnormal brain problem with, with the monster. So, so they have to have somebody else that comes up with the scheme to make the bride. So they come up with Dr. Pretorius and Dr. Pretorius is shown to have also created life, and he had done it a different way than Frankenstein. He wasn't reanimating dead tissue. 
But the way he explains it, he grows his creatures from seed the way nature does. That's almost a direct quote. And But his creatures come out miniature. So they're like Lilliputians, maybe six or seven inches high. And he's got a whole bunch of them he's created. And one of them is a, a king and one of them is a queen. They, he next makes one a bishop so that he can wag his finger at the king and the queen. So there's a lot of dark humor in the in Bride of Frankenstein. And then one of them that he creates, he says, this one is the very devil. And he says, there's quite a resemblance to me, don't you think? And the guy, the guy's dressed up in the black tux and he's got a cane. He doesn't have horns, but I don't believe he has horns. I'll have to look again. I could be wrong. I don't believe he does. But Theisger, sorry, uh, Pretorius, played by Ernest Theisger, who steals the movie, by the way, just completely steals it. But he says, uh, there's a, a resemblance to me, don't you think? So he associates himself with the devil. So that's, of course, not by accident. So now you have the monster set up as Jesus. You have Pretorius as the devil, but it's Pretorius's idea to create the mate. And of course, this is a bad thing to go on reanimating another person. Interestingly, they don't grow this creature organically. They do another stitch-up job, but I think they grow the brain the way Pretorius had uh, originally done it because he couldn't get normal size. So, you know, there's there's some willing suspension of disbelief even beyond reanimating body parts into a living person. But even internally, you've got to kind of think a few things. But I I hate to spoil the end of the movie, but I will say that at the end of the movie, the monster carries out the work that Jesus is prophesied to carry out at the end of times. So he sees that the guilty are punished, that maybe not the innocent, but those who want redemption are saved, allowed to live, and he sacrifices his own life to make sure that the evil within this, the framework of the Bride of Frankenstein story is destroyed. And that, again, those who may have been previously guilty but who sought redemption are allowed to live as as the movie ends. So I won't say more than that, because if you haven't seen the movie, this to me is the best of all of the classic horror movies. Close second would be the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde made with, in 1932 with Frederick March in the titular role. But, but to me, Bride of Frankenstein is just a little bit better. And... I want to say one more thing about the Frankenstein movies in general, but or in, in the Frankenstein novel, which is that it's almost universally understood that the message of the novel is that man should not pursue certain knowledge because he'll encroach upon, you know, God's territory and and he'll be punished for that. And I don't really think that that's the overall message that Mary Shelley had in mind. Remember, Mary Shelley was a radical. 
And she would have been kind of a hippie today, but a rich hippie. I shouldn't say that. I should say, actually, her father was a very famous anarchist, one of the first in the modern era, but he was always in debt. And, and although he was kind of a gentleman, he, he always had financial problems. But if you step back from the Frankenstein story and you say, okay, why is Frankenstein punished? And especially in the novel, it's particularly Frankenstein who is published punished. It's not a monster just on this random killing spree. He targets Frankenstein's loved ones in revenge, number one, for creating him in the first place, only to abandon him and leave him miserable. This ugly, hideous thing that nobody likes and that's constantly in pain and torment. And then later on, as I said, the revenge focuses on Frankenstein's refusal to make him a companion, to make somebody like him so he could at least have one person on earth who didn't find him ugly, whatever. So if you think about that, that Frankenstein is responsible for this monster's shortcomings, for his suffering, for the evil he commits because of his suffering. I really think that this is an indictment of the other creator because aren't we all, compared to our image of the divine, ugly Aren't we all in pain and torment? Torment. Don't we live lives of privation? And especially when you think this was written in 1818, we hadn't even had the Industrial Revolution. Most people were in grinding poverty. Well, who's responsible for that, right? The, the one who created these people. He could have created them any way he wanted. He could have created them. Now we have the whole story of, well, he did put you in the Garden of Eden and you screwed that up. Well, who gave the Adam and Eve the inclination to screw that up? Who created the serpent? You know, so uh, whether you agree or not with these ideas, I believe these are the, the true intention of Mary Shelley was to raise this question, who is responsible for our suffering? And why should whoever is responsible for our suffering be excused for it? If indeed the creator is all powerful, then there was no need for this. And especially since I know that in the 19th century, these were the kinds of questions lots of people were asking. Even if you read Mark Twain's Mysterious Stranger, at the very end, he raises the same questions. Why are the angels given eternal life free from sin or suffering or pain or sickness where human beings are born into this life where they have to suffer and then just earn what the angels are given for free. Why is that? That doesn't seem fair. So these are the kinds of ideas, I think, that are behind the Frankenstein story. So I think it's just a very interesting way to look at it and, of course, not necessarily a denunciation that there is a creator or, or a pamphlet for atheism, but rather just, hey, you gave me this intellect. 
You gave me this reasoning ability, and now I have questions, and I'm not getting answers. I really think that's the real message of the Frankenstein story. So if you do happen to read the novel, or you have read the novel, and you're thinking about rereading it, I think that's a perspective to bring to the novel and even to the movie. And I wanted to say in Bride of Frankenstein, there's a scene early on when Praetorius first visits Dr. Frankenstein, who's recovering from his ordeal at the burning mill. And Praetorius says he wants to continue the work and and Dr. Frankenstein says, no, no, I've learned my lesson. It's, you know, I don't, I don't want to do any more of this. And now Pretorius has to start using some leverage on him. And he says at one point, you know, it's really you that are responsible for all those murders. There are penalties to be paid for killing. And then he lets Frankenstein know, and it seems like Frankenstein already knows that his creature is still at large in the countryside. But Whale or the screenwriters having Praetorius say, it's really you that's responsible for all those murders. Who's responsible? Not the monster. The monster's creator is responsible. So I think that, that Whale and the screenwriters were very attuned to that theme that this is an indictment of God himself, or at least, hey, like I said, I've got some difficult questions for you and I'd like answers. Of course, we don't get those answers, at least not in this life. So really interesting stuff. This this movie, Bride of Frankenstein, is just a humongous work of art. There's all kinds of other sidelights, dark humor in it. Of course, James Whale was a homosexual at a time when that was actually illegal, where you could go to jail for it. And I don't think it's an accident either that the one time the monster finds happiness is being part of a household, not with a wife and kids, a dog named Buffy and, you know, a white picket fence, but in companionship with another man. And there's no suggestion, of course, that there's any kind of amorous relationship between the monster and the hermit. But I think this is whale tweak polite society's nose to say, here's, you know, true happiness in my films, <laughs> two men living together. So there's just so much, there's so many layers to that movie that I think you've got to watch it carefully and really probably watch it more than once and think about it a little bit. And I encourage you to, to read the novel. If you've seen the movies, the novel, a completely different plot than the movies, other than the very bare-bone details that, yes, Frankenstein creates a monster and things go wrong. But other than that, you know, you can read the novel and enjoy it for the great storytelling and, of course, think about some of these ideas that uh, I think are definitely present. So as far as the rest of the Frankenstein movies go, Whale only did Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, when you get to Son of Frankenstein, they start to to descend down from a movie, I'm making a serious film, down to something for the Saturday matinee. Now, Karloff is still the monster in Son of Frankenstein. Inexplicably, though he was talking in Bride of Frankenstein, he's lost that ability and is now more like 
the monster from the first film. You've got Basil Rathbone, who's great in everything. You've got Lionel Atwill, also great in everything. He's the one-armed detective that they lampoon in Go Son or Young Frankenstein, sorry, the great Gene Wilder spoof of these classics. But after that, I would say, you know, they become B movies and they become aimed at a younger audience, but they're still so good. The one that a lot of people probably haven't seen after Son of Frankenstein, they do one called Ghost of Frankenstein. And this has Lon Chaney as the monster, Lon Chaney Jr. And it's the first of the truly B movies. I, I'd give Son of Frankenstein's kind of an A minus because they've got such a great cast and they still have Karloff as the monster. But it's it's a step down by far from Bride of Frankenstein. You don't have James Whale directing anymore. And then starting with Ghost of Frankenstein, they become more of the two-reeler B-movie, but still great atmosphere. You got Lionel Atwell in that one in a supporting role. He's he's great. Cedric Hardwick, a little stagey and whatever, but he's good. And uh, Ralph Bellamy, who younger people might remember from Trading Places as one of the rich brothers. Well, he's He's in that movie, Ghost of Frankenstein. He's also in uh, The Wolfman with Lon Chaney in 1941. So as a young man, you can see him in those. And then as you get House of, or Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is obviously for kids, but still good storytelling. The Wolfman story continues. And I would go, the, the, the movies go, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Then you have House of Frankenstein, and they bring Dracula in. They've got Dracula, the Wolfman, and Frankenstein. And then they do the same thing in House of Dracula, the last of the the series. And I would watch those movies to just watch the Wolfman's story play out because... First of all, I think Lon Chaney becomes a better actor over that period. The Wolfman's story gets more interesting over that period, and it's worth it just to see how it ends. You'll you'll be surprised by the end, how the Wolfman's story ends in House of Dracula. So worthwhile to watch them all, even though they become a little silly towards the end. Still, the atmosphere is there. The kind of gothic feel is there, and they're just good fun. Um, but if you're looking for something with a, a serious film with a lot of meat and a lot of layers, that's Bride of Frankenstein. So I've already blabbed about so many things for over 40 minutes here that I'm going to leave it there. I might return to this theme again and talk about these old movies. I love them so much. But I want to wish everybody a happy Halloween, and I hope you enjoyed this break from politics Geez, you got to talk about something else once in a while, right? I mean, it just gets so so boring and maddening at the same time. Happy Halloween to everybody, and I'll see you next week on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.